When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to The Gabby Ree Show, where we break down the complex worlds of health, fitness, family, business, and relationships with the world's leading experts. I'm your host, Gabby Reese, and I'm here to simplify these topics and give you practical takeaways that you can start using today. We all know that living a healthy, balanced life isn't always easy. Let's try working on managing life a little better and have some fun along the way. Because after all, Life is just one big experiment, and we're all doing our best. Really, I've been in the rooms with some of the most powerful people in this country, and it's no different. Just like in business, you know, whether you have two zeros or you've gotten to the point of having six zeros, you learn it's actually the same. And politics is a room where people sit around and they talk about what they want to do. And then the question is not the technicality. The question is, are you going to do the right thing or are you going to do the thing that the insurance companies will allow you to do or the pharmaceutical companies will allow you to do or big food or big chemical companies or big agricultural companies will allow you to do or gun manufacturers or uh, big oil companies or defense contractors will allow you to do. Franklin Roosevelt said that the most important job of the president was not administrative, but moral leadership. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. My guest today is Marianne Williamson. And this is a little, I think it's a different type of show for me. I I tend to, you know, do the health and wellness and scientists and things like that. And I'm obviously not that much into politics, or at least sort of, I don't really want it to get into those types of debates. However, You know Marianne, she's a renowned author, activist, spiritual leader. She's penned a ton of books. Ones that you know are Return to Love, The Law of Divine Compensation, and Healing the Soul of America. And there's a ton of wisdom and compassion in these books. And and she was really inspired by a very big book called A Course in Miracles. And why I wanted to talk to Marianne wasn't really to get into a conversation about her politics, but I was fascinated why a woman who's been really successful in one field and was so upset by the way things have been going. And I think we all feel that way. I think if if we could sort of believe that we could make a difference in a, on a public scale, senator, congressman, I mean, president is lofty, but just do something to try to heal or bring us all closer and back together and, you know, sort of collectively work this out. I think we would all do that. And I was curious, why would she take this on? I mean, it is hard. They don't accept her in politics. It is sort of a closed loop place. And unless you're groomed for that, they don't really want that. And I'm like, here's somebody who's highly beloved in this one space. And they willingly walk into this other space because she feels so strongly about wanting to do something and sort of all hands on decks. For that, I really appreciated it. And then, yes, I want to know, how do you maintain a schedule where... It is a lot of heavy lifting and, you know, she's certainly very healthy and vibrant, but, you know, she's a little bit older. And how do you take care of yourself? How do you sustain your health with that type of tempo and schedule? That'd be hard for any of us. I look at it and I think I would literally fall apart because I like to have my routine. It's sort of like, where do I get my food? And yeah, then I implement sort of some hectic things here and there, but she is taking it on full bore and leaning headfirst. So it's not sprinkled heavily in politics um, because I I sort of tend to think I can't really get to the bottom of things anyway. And so I'd rather talk about the tangibles and the things that relate and pertain to all of us, regardless of our our beliefs or our gender or, or our age. And so that's really what I wanted to talk to her about. I really encourage you to keep an open mind, regardless of what you have preconceived ideas and just listen to the conversation. She has a lot of wisdom. So I hope you enjoy my show with Marianne Williamson. 
Marianne Williamson, thank you so much for coming to my home. Thank I know you. you are, this is an understatement, busy beyond belief. Yeah. Well, but I'm honored to be here and thank you for having me. I want to go back and, and just do a little bit of your backstory because I feel like you are an amazing example of somebody where all of your experiences bring you to this moment where you can bring those lessons and those skill sets into this new role that you are in. And when somebody does something like you, where it's a spiritual path and you write a book of a return to love. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you do the research, they love to say things like, you know, you were Oprah's spiritual guide or, or kind of, I know, because everybody likes to put it in a can, Mm -hmm. but there was a journey for you to get there. And maybe you could just share sort of what you read or things that you went through that you made this turn into really diving down into spirituality and to the conversation about love and finding love and gratitude in your own life. Thank you. First of all, I was very much a child of my generation. So when I was in college, we read Ram Dass and Alan Watts in the morning, and we went to anti-war protests, Vietnam War protests in the afternoon. The counterculture of that time, 60s and 70s, wasn't split into categories the way things are today. It was a general countercultural feel. It was sexual, it was musical, it was political, it was everything. And you were just part of this new burst of life. You, nobody thought, are you spiritual or are you political? Everybody was everything. Mm-hmm. I never got the memo to be any different. Now, the Kennedy, first starting with the um, with the Kennedy with the John Kennedy assassination, but then in '68 with the Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King Jr. assassinations, and then with the kids at Kent State, there was such it was it was such a collective trauma for everyone, including the fact that there was this inherent unspoken threat in the air to back off political activism. And I think a lot of people sort of took the message of those assassinations. It scared everyone. It spooked everyone for good reason. And I think that there was a lot of internal searching. A lot of people sort of stayed with the political. But I myself, I think, in looking back, was just part of what the cultural movement that went more in the direction of personal searching. That doesn't mean that I became less politically interested. It doesn't mean I became less involved on the level of voting, on the level of supporting candidates, on the level of caring. I definitely did. But during my 20s, I was just doing what everybody does in their 20s. You know, you're trying to find yourself. That generation, this generation, the 20s are hard, you know. And then But I was always interested when I was in school and out of school. I was always interested in anything that had to do with the higher mind. I could be reading the I Ching. I could be reading Hegel. I could be reading the Kabbalah. I could be looking at astrology. It has never, I've never related much to, is it Western or is it Eastern? Is it exoteric? Is it esoteric? For me, anything that has had to do with consciousness has always been, I've gravitated towards. And then in my mid-20s, I was living in New York City and I was at a, a party one night, and I picked up a set of books called A Course in Miracles. Just a, just a small little light read. <laughs> just right. And when I, like it's a, well, I was fascinated by it, though, because in the introduction, it says, this is A Course in Miracles. It is a required course. I thought, what book says that? Mm-hmm. What book opens up? And of course, when you read it, when you actually read it, you, it's not saying this particular book is the required course. It's saying that the journey to oneself is going to happen whether you want it to or not. And Also, it had the Christian language. Now, I'm Jewish, and I had studied a lot of comparative religion in college. I had studied uh, St. Augustine. I studied uh, Thomas Aquinas and all of that. But But that was school. That was academic. So I saw that Christian language, and I thought, well, this must be a Christian book. So, you know, it's not for me. But I was fascinated by the fact that there was no author on the front. Now, you see that sometimes now. But at that time, I'd never seen a book that had no author on the front. So I... Never forgot it. I was living with someone at the time. I think we probably talked about it that night. And then I don't remember ever talking about it again. I used to go to work. We were living in New York City. And I used to, oh, the man at the at the party, whose house it was, who had the Course in Miracles on the table, told me, he said, well, if you ever want that book, they sell it uh, out of an apartment at the Beresford Apartment Building on 79th and Central Park West. And there were a couple times during that year I would be on the 
on the bus and I would see somebody reading it. And I remember seeing a, the boyfriend of an ex-friend of mine, ex-roommate of mine. It's just kind of interesting. About a year after going to that party, I'm on that same bus. And every year I used to get bronchitis during the winter in New York. And I was on my way to the doctor. I was feeling very down. And we passed that apartment building. And I simply said to myself, I'm going to get that book. I don't know why. I just said, it's, you know, I'm going to get that book. And I went home, went to the doctor, went home, opened the apartment door. And there sitting on the coffee table was A Course in Miracles. Mm -hmm. And I looked up at my boyfriend. It's like, and he just said to me, I thought it was time. We hadn't even talked about it for a year. And by the way, what I just said to you, 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 a lot of people have their like story of how they first found The Course in Miracles. Now, when I started reading The Course, it wasn't so much, and it still isn't, like you find something there that you don't find in any other book. The Course has no monopoly on truth. It's a psychological training based on universal spiritual themes. You've read a lot of it in a lot of spiritual books, but it has a practical application to it. Mm. And that is what made so much difference in my life. I already believed certain things. I already understood certain principles, but I didn't the key for me was how to unlock the door. I, I used to have an image in my mind. And the image in my mind was there's a big cathedral. And there's a big wooden door at the top. And there's all these stone steps. And man, I had climbed those steps. I had climbed those steps on my hands and knees. My knees were bloody. My elbows were bloody. I had tried to part. And I tr climbed those steps. I had. I climbed those steps. And I got to the door. Mm. And the door was still locked. The Course in Miracles taught me the key to unlocking the door is you're blessing the person in front of you. You're blessing the person you're thinking of. You're forgiving everyone, including yourself. Unless and until you pick up that key, the door will not open. I didn't know that until I read the course. I'm not saying it wasn't written anywhere. I just hadn't heard it. Yeah. And uh, that made all the difference. What's, what in you, because I think a lot of us want to do that, you know, uh, when we're feeling something about somebody is, you know, this idea of praying for somebody or only wishing them well, did you have to implement some type of practice or did you just find it once the idea really landed for you that you could do it? Listen, I'm not perfect at it right now. It, it's constant. Especially the you game you never play. Yeah. <laughs> the, but the Course in Miracles does have 365 days of workbook exercises. It's kind of like physical training. You know, it's one thing you go to the gym, but you don't know how to work the equipment. Mm -hmm. It helps to have a trainer. And that's what I feel like. I felt like I, I was at the gym. I saw all the machines. I believed in it, but I needed a trainer. I needed somebody to say, you do this, you do this, you do this. Because it's a specific curriculum on the relinquishment of a thought system based on fear and the acceptance instead of a thought system based in love. But it's also like physical exercise in that you never get to stop. You never get to say, okay, I like it. Look, now I don't have to do this anymore because there is emotional and psychological gravity, just like there's physical gravity. And after a certain age, if you're not working and keeping those muscles up, they're headed down and life is tempting. So I do, I do, I'm, cer I'm certainly, I, you know, I'm no enlightened master. I'm certainly not at a point in my life where I always get it right. But I am, I believe, past any point of justifying getting it wrong. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's an interesting thing because, you know, to have the courage. So, uh, well, first of all, how did you then go about uh, writing a return to love? And then you, you, you sort of got thrust into this position of, and I don't want to use the word authority, but in a way there's an authority and well, that can be also in conflict with the exact practice that you're talking about. That has actually not been the problem, but I'll tell you why in a moment. Let me go back a little bit. The career that I have now and that so many of us have mm -hmm. did not is a career niche that did not exist then. So there was nothing to be ambitious for. Mm. There, I had no concept in my head of bestseller book. I had no concept in my head of, there was no internet yet. There, there was this whole career niche of someone, you know, my parents kept saying, we'll send you to rabbinical school, you know, or my parents would say, you could go and you could teach comparative religion in a, in a college. Right. And I guess they would hear their daughter say, I just want to get up and I want to talk about God and I want to mm -hmm. talk about lo being loving and I want to talk about being forgiving and they're going, how are you going to make a living? Yeah. And I was like, well, I'll just do whatever I'm doing 
but th- there was no sense that you could make a living doing that. I was a I was a temporary secretary. I was a a waitress. I just found these books so fascinating. And at that time, this whole thing of transformation and consciousness was just starting. There was a lot of the Indian gurus like Muktananda. A lot of that was starting, but. This broader societal impulse of the universal spirituality and personal transformation it was just in these nascent stages. So there was no think of maybe I could make a living doing this. It was I was complete innocent, and I think that's where a lot of it came from. Yeah. So for me, it was just about wanting, thinking it was so amazing when I had moved to Houston and I had a bookstore and I started just talking about these books. Then I moved to Los Angeles and I was talking at a place over at Philosophical Research Society, just talking about these books. And then what happened was that the AIDS crisis Mm. blew up. And when that happened, all of these people, particularly gay men who were affected by the AIDS crisis, heard about this then young woman. I was young like they were, I was 31. And who was outrageous and had clubbed like they had, talking about a God who loves you no matter what, and how with enough love that we could have miracles. So gay men in L.A. really gave me my career. Then somebody said, you should write a book based on these little cassette tapes you make Mm -hmm. of your talks. And then just Oprah Winfrey happened to read the book, had me on, and for anyone who's old enough, you know, some of these young kids have no idea the power what it meant to say you on Oprah and she liked your book. She really gave me, you know, gay men in LA really gave me my career, and she gave me a mainstream audience. When I, if in getting ready for this, I went back and watched some of your interviews, but I, I have to say that you were as poised and still and confident then as you are here now, and I found it interesting that level of comfort, or so naturally. The Course in Miracles is a discipline. You know, the word disciple and the word discipline come from the same uh, from the same root. There is an emotional and psychological discipline that comes from really discipleship, even though that's not a word that's used in the Course, I don't think. You're right, though. In my work, I've always had that. Not in every aspect of my life. Sure. But in my work. I think most, I mean, you're a parent. I think most of us, whether it's romance or parent, being parents, I think it's, we're always, maybe there's a being a little more, un, not not as sure-footed, but I it just found it interesting that you- You, you get s- serious. You stood so still. place where you get very serious, there's yeah. no joke, and yeah. you'd be good now. <laughs> yeah. And uh, all that falls aside. When we talk about being rooted, because I think about this a lot from a movement or a biological side, like- you know, some of our biology driving us in this world that we live in and it's incongruent, right? Whether it's overeating or just certain things that they don't match anymore because we've departed so Completely much. Completely out of alignment. Right. When you talk about most of us, and I, I can identify with this myself, don't be fooled by any exterior. I'm always checking what's my driving me here. Is it my fear or is it my love? I'm always checking because most times it probably starts as fear, Mm-hmm. And I get better as I get older because I have been trying to work that muscle. But I always wonder, even from your point of view, why do you think it wasn't the other way around in nature or in our psyche to be driven f- from love or from fear? I, there's got to be a reason. Well, what the Course in Miracles says is that we are born of love, that we are love, but that millions of years ago in time as we know it, A thought was thought, which is not of love. And all energy expands. And the thought, and the Course in Miracles says that love is to fear what light is to dark. Mm. And all that darkness is, is the absence of light. And all that fear is, is the absence of love. We fell asleep. And there's that line in the Course where it says, in the Bible, it says that Adam fell asleep. And nowhere does it say that he woke up. And there has not been a mass awakening but it's time on the planet for us to initiate one. People have, we have forgotten, we have forgotten who we are. We've forgotten why we're here. We're only here to love each other. That's the only reason we're here. And when you forget that, the world becomes disharmonious. And at this point, I think I'm feeling a real gathering of critical mass of people who get this whole thing. This has gone too far. You know, you're the mother of, of girls. I'm sure you know, there's the newest one, 
is young people, particularly teenagers and people in their 20s, who can't stop vomiting. Have you heard about that new one? Yeah. I mean, yeah, this is uh, someone in my own family, people I hear about. There are so many signs on the level of the body, on the level of the internal life, on the level of the external life, that something is profoundly awry. And so what happened for me was that I felt that my greatest service, my greatest contribution and any talent I had, had to do with personal transformation. But then as the years went by, I began to realize you can do all your personal transformation, but if they're poisoning the air, they're poisoning all the food, they're poisoning the water, they're making it, you know, you and I can talk about personal transformation. What about somebody who has to work three jobs just to put food on the table, who doesn't have health care, for whom a lot of this personal transformation would be seen as an indulgence that they don't even have the bandwidth for, much less the, well, it doesn't really take money. I mean, but- no, it's a luxury yeah, to have a, philosophical conversations so of I any kind. I began to realize, and also even during that time, having been exposed to the AIDS crisis, being an activist, I was in there forming nonprofits. I was always very much into the charitable, but I began to realize, I began to see how this country works. Mm-hmm. And I began to see that no amount of private charity can compensate for a basic lack of social justice. And I also saw how the... the world of personal transformation. Because remember when I began, there were just a few of us. It was me, Wayne Dyer, Deepak. There were like five of us who were talking about these things. It became a huge phenomenon and it became a little bit of a capitalist phenomenon. And I began to see, oh, oh, this is just being more of that system. Mm. And that's when I began to realize that political change had to be part of this. Yeah. And I'm curious in your own practice, how you self-govern because success is an interesting beast to navigate. And then on top of it, being someone who's personally kind of the messenger, whether it's you or a divine something coming through <clears throat> you, what practice did you have to kind of keep yourself in check? Because that's... Well, I think we have different aspects of the brain, different aspects of the personality. First of all, meditation, meditation, meditation. And I do transcendental meditation, but my main practice is the Course in Miracles. But I've also seen in my, seen in my life that there will be one area, and my work is one of them, where I'm disciplined. I, if, I'm not saying I never get it wrong, but if I get it wrong, I know how to self-correct very quickly. Mm-hmm. My stuff was actually always like with men, with uh, uh, personal relationships, intimate relationships, uh, that's where it's, it's almost like your subconscious says, I'm going to have it together over here and you're going to have to work it out over here yeah. where it's, it's, so it can. And I, I don't think, I, I doubt that I'm the only person for whom that's true, where it's just in one area of life. I remember saying to a therapist many years ago, going into her, her office in despair and saying, I have it together here. I have it together here. I have it together here. I have it. And I'm a mess over here. And she said, well, that's good. We know that you, you have the musculature of having it together, but places where we have blind spots, where I can see where it applies here, but in that moment, even if I can intellectually see it applies here, in that moment I didn't, and I sent that text anyway. I said that thing anyway, right? It's the work we all have to do, (laughs) and my work is not over. Do you, what about being a successful female, right? I think nobody ever talks about the nuance of you're out there. Now you have a very big career. You're killing it. You have your daughter. So in a way, I don't want to say that that's kind of enough family, but I think for a lot of us, that would be like, well, I'm kind of good. Yeah. How would anyone even have a chance to be interested in you? Would there be room? Um, oh, the man thing? Well, no, and I don't need gory details. I just mean, there's a lot of women who go, Hey, I want to strive. I want to participate. I want to build a big life in my work life. And and how does there room or where is the opening for someone to come in and step in and be like, you know, would you like to have a coffee with me? Well, it's interesting because I have at this point, even though both things come from the same place in my heart, from an external, on an external plane, I have two separate careers. Right, mm-hmm. one having to do with spiritual teaching, right. spiritual mm-hmm. uh, books, and so forth, personal transformation world, and then there's this other thing which has developed, which is politics. I thought where you were going had to do with being a woman in terms of leadership and misogyny, which is very interesting. Yeah, but well, we well, can get into that too. Yeah. Okay. Well, first of all, what you asked about was men, and it's very interesting because in my so-called spiritual, you know, career as a writer, I always 
did have a little bit of love you, honey, but this would slow me down. Yeah. Um, I, I got to be able to, you know, fly away tomorrow whenever I want. So, and also when you're younger, you take all that for granted because you think, well, if not you, babe, there's another one. You know, so when you're young, it's very different as, sure. you, as you get older. When I was in that, in that career space, I, I was the one who sort of pushed it, not pushed it away, but had limitations based on what I just said. With a political, I'll tell you something, it's very different. It's very different. I totally understand now. When you think of, you think of Bernie Sanders, he has um, Jane Sanders around all the time, Barack and Michelle, uh, Hillary and Bill, George and Laura. I understand because in a political space, it is a profound emotional roller coaster, mm-hmm. unlike anything almost you can even imagine. And when everybody around you is on the payroll yeah. or part of the campaign, having someone there who you didn't have to be on with, it would be wonderful. Yeah. So now I look, it's it's interesting. It's almost the opposite. It, it used to be, well, I can't do the career thing if I have him here. And now it's more like, I don't know how they're going to do this if there's no him here. But, you know, you can't order that from a catalog. Right. You can't just yeah. Yeah, get that on, on the fly. I, I'm curious, though, when you're, when you're showing up for your work, you just said, you know, not being on for... Yeah, and you mentioned you talked to a therapist, so obviously you could talk to people. But I would imagine now that you're in politics, how do you blend, hey, I have this message, you know, I want an economic U-turn, I have all these things I want to say, and being yourself. You know, where's the room? How do you get to calibrate those two things? Because politics seems like there isn't a ton of room for the person. It's devastating. You can, you know, people ask me when I ran before, at the end, they asked me, what was your experience? And I always gave the same answer because it was very, you know, it was real. And it's even more real now. I learned that what I call the political media industrial complex Mm. is more corrupt, more vicious than I feared. And now I see than you can even imagine. And I saw that the voters, the people of the United States are even more wonderful than I hoped. Mm. So there are two worlds. You're out there, you're talking about things, you're talking to people, you're talking to young people, to older people, to uh, people about what, you know, this instinctive yearning we all have, people on the left, on the right, the uh, people knowing that we're the keepers of this great ideal and we have to save it and we have to make it better. And there's something so beautiful and exhilarating. And then you get off that art, that you get out of that room mm-hmm. and you see something on Twitter about how you're the most awful person in the world and somebody lying about you and smearing you. So you have about 15 minutes before you get back on again to call somebody and say, would somebody put out a statement about that? So it's uh, an emotional, it, it, nothing has ever been such a spiritual challenge for me as this is. And it feels like the media and all that group is almost the corridor to the people. Like you can go out and shake all the hands, but somehow there's still this translator between and you and them. when a narrative them. is in the ethers. Oh, man. Yeah. And that's also, I never felt, you know, in the personal transformation space, woman's leadership is a natural. I never, I mean, I have felt sometimes like, okay, if Deepak wrote a book, uh, or if Sam Keen wrote a book, none of us as women thought it wasn't a book for us to read. Whereas when some of the yeah. women read books, men think, oh, it's a woman's book. So there was that, but that's like small compared to. Yeah. In politics, I did. I think I've always had an, a visceral, I get what anti-Semitism is. And to whatever extent a white woman can, I understand what racism is. I never understood misogyny until this experience. If people leave my campaign, it's chaos and dysfunction and I'm a bitch. If Ron DeSantis fires six people, he's really shaking it up. He's yeah. really making his campaign better. Yeah. The narratives. And and I have to say something else that's really sad is how many times it's women writing those narratives. Well, okay. So I was going to say, I watched several interviews and it was women speaking to you and they hadn't even started the interview and you hadn't even had an answer. And I felt the, like, why do you think you can do this? You have no woman. experience. You're coming from the outside. I'm a woman. Yeah, it's interesting. I uh, It also feels like the system to me. You're, it feels like, well, let's talk about that. So you run, why would you say, and I I know 
it's the only way is to make the change. But after knowing that and thinking, oh, the system is really corrupt and, and there's a kind of a fixedness to it and all of these things, because it's really now we we kowtow to corporations where this is what politics is. It has nothing to do really with us. It has to do with its corporations. It is. It's a huge corporate. That's what it is. Business I mean, you can point. see it in healthcare. You can see it every education. Right. It's across Absolutely. the board. For you to go, you know what? I'm going to go again. Is, was it just so bad that you go, okay, I'm not going to stand by and watch this and I'm going to, I need to get involved. What were you thinking? Good question. So the first time it was like, it was almost <laughs> like idiot savant stuff. Kind of uh-huh. like, it was like, I'm going to run for president just as knowing and entered it quite naively. Once I had been through it, I was not naive. So deciding to do it again was a long process. And I knew. I knew how vicious the system is in its insistence on peripheralizing or suppressing the voice of anyone that they do not feel uh, aligns with their predetermined corporate-based conversation, no doubt about it. So it was difficult to decide because, but the image I had in my mind was, yes, you're running into a burning building. You cannot pretend you're not running into a burning building. And then I had this image of being filled on the inside with white fire retardant. The idea that God would give me the fire retardant. And then also tough skin. I have some emotional antibodies that I didn't have last time. But at the same time, it's harder this time. Because last time they just mocked and made fun. And this time it's- They're coming for you a little more? Oh, yeah. So when what did what have you gained that in the few years you've become more resilient? What happened to you? I don't know if I become more resilient. I think you become more resilient because you have to. I say to myself, okay, you can either, clearly they're telling you, get out of here, get out of here, get out of here in all kinds of ways. And it's very bizarre when they're not attacking me, they're invisibilizing me, erasing me, not even mentioning my name. That might be worse. Hmm? It is worse in some weird mm. way. It is worse in, or, or even like just not even mentioning your name or calling you long shot. I mean, I'm no more of a long shot than Barack Obama was at this point when he first ran in 2008 or Donald Trump, whatever. Um, I could quit. And then, you know, go away with this sort of mantle of shame because they're putting all these stories over me like I'm really not even a nice person. Mm. It's, it's so, it's really painful. So, because, you know, you've had a 40-year career of some dignity and some success and some decency. I was like, whoa. Okay, so I could go away, tail between my legs, mantle of shame, like mm-hmm. scarlet letter or something. Oh. And I think I would never, I don't know how to ever forgive myself. Or you stay in. Now, if you stay in, somebody told me something a few months ago, which I thought was amazing. As an athlete, I think you're going to find this interesting. Do you know who the most successful tightrope walkers are? No. Those who don't have a net. Mm. They cannot afford to indulge a fraction of a second. This might not work. So it's such practice. You're either going to be in or you're going to be out, Williamson. And if you're in... You, you know, and, I, and I'm a Cancerian. I do feel things very deeply. And also another thing, I have personal friends who are very loving and very compassionate, but they don't understand what the political game is. Not really. I have political friends who I don't really want to have see me get too vulnerable and like cry because then they might start doubting. Yeah, can you do it? Can right. you handle it? Right. Oh, interesting. So it's a very lonely road. Mm. But once again, I say to myself, what a spiritual practice. What a spiritual practice, including forgiveness, including discipline. And also there is a little voice in me that says, just in case you do become president, this will have been amazing training. Mm -hmm. Because you think this is tough? Yeah. Try being president. I'm so fascinated. So I understand how, you, you know, you you roll into the first career. And it, I often think about, like, if I could be president, because I've had dreams, right? Like, you always have dreams, especially when stuff is like a shit show. And mm-hmm. you're just like, 
I wish I could be president and, you know, I would change things. And then I thought I would try to surround myself with the smartest people I could find Which that could actually teach me on the fly because I don't understand the all the intricacies of government. So I'm, I'm just fascinated on a nuts and bolts level what you've, how you thought, okay, this, I have a sense of what I want to accomplish. I feel like I, ha- I know the areas that we need to change. Mm-hmm. Now, how do you get a strategy to go about? Well, and it, even the conversation to get educated, to debate or talk about it, where does that come from? I look at politics, like I look at, um, what are those television shows, the daytime soap operas? Oh, geez. So <laughs> you're, you're sick, you're homesick and you have the television on and you have it on in the background and you don't know who any of them are, right? You've mm-hmm. heard me tell the story. Probably. No. And then the I second just... day... It's on in the background, but you're starting to see, oh, him, her. Mm-hmm. By the third or fourth day, you're going, oh, my God, she's having his baby. Mm-hmm. It, like, clicks you, in, mm-hmm. and then you get the plot. That's how politics is. You don't get the plot, and then you do get the plot, mm-hmm. and you go, oh, my God, those MFs and what they're doing, and they're taking over. And it's the corporatization of our food supply, and it's the corporatization of our energy, and it's the corporatization of our media, and it's the corporatization of our foreign policy, and it's the corporatization. Once you get it. Yeah. And they and you get that the game is to make you think it's more complicated than it is. That's part of how the wool has been uh, pulled over the average American's eyes is this myth that it's more complicated than it is. And that it's almost this Wizard of Oz. Oh, she doesn't know how to go be a wizard. No, I'm I, I would not be there to be a wizard. I would be there to turn, pull the curtain down. Yeah. Because really, I've been in the rooms with some of the most powerful people in this country, and it's no different. Right. It's no different. Just like in business, you know, whether you're, you have two zeros or you've gotten to the point of having six zeros, you learn it's actually the same. Yeah. And, 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 and politics is a room where people sit around and they talk about what they want to do. And then the question is not the technicality. The question is, are you going to do the right thing or are you going to do the thing that the insurance companies will allow you to do or the pharmaceutical companies will allow you to do or big food or big chemical companies or big agricultural companies will allow you to do or gun manufacturers or uh, big oil companies or defense contractors will allow you to do. Franklin Roosevelt said, that the most important job of the president was not administrative, but moral leadership. We don't need, it's not like what you're referring to as the political car mechanics. That's not what we lack in this country. The problem is we're on the wrong road. Mm. We don't need more technocrats. We need someone to remind us of the vision that we all know, but we've all been so gaslit and all the dots have been, you know, we've Well, it feels overwhelming too. It feels, to the level of which it feels broken. Yeah. And infiltrated right. feels so overwhelming. Feels so overwhelming, and that's why, that's why you know this young man came up to me for some for whatever reason. I do have this kind of heart connection with Gen Z, right? I feel like they see me and hear me, and mm-hmm. I think there's, there's some love connection there. And this young man came up to me at an event the other night, and he said, "You know how you tell that story." of when you dropped out last time and your women friends told you you should drop out and the men were telling you there's still time on the clock and Joe Lewis regretted till the day he died. And I said, yeah, he said, and you know how the men said stay and the women said leave. And I said, yeah, he said, please stay. Mm. And there are, it's like when my friends say to me, some of my friends say, Mary, don't you realize the fascists are at the door? How could you be doing this? And I always say, Let me guess. You have health care, don't you? You have health insurance, don't you? Let me just guess. You can afford to send your kids to college, right? Mm. Let me guess. You can can live on just one job, and it's probably more than $15 an hour, right? I don't... There are too many people who possibly, it could be said, should know better, who don't seem to have any idea how much suffering there is out there. And that's what keeps me in. And you talk so much about that in your earlier practice about our we're connected. We are all connected. Mm-hmm. And this is just a continuation of being connected. Absolutely. It's the same. Uh, you know, Martin Luther King said, we need external changes in our circumstances and we need internal qualitative shifts in our souls. We need quantitative and qualitative change right now. We need inner and outer. And that's why I've been saying for a long time in the transformational community, we cannot ignore politics. 
You cannot, we cannot ignore politics, right. but also a lot of the people who are into transactional politics and ever just changing things on the level of symptom are starting to recognize there's some deeper level on which things have gone awry. Yeah. Well, and I think what's going to be really interesting is, all, you know, the chickens are going to come home to roost and it doesn't matter if you have a billion dollars or you have a thousand dollars. I think some of these right. policies that have been covered uh, will will bite every family. Absolutely. It doesn't matter. And so maybe for the wealthy, it's a little longer, but it'll be a grandchild. Something Absolutely. happens. No amount of money can no. protect you your, or your kids or your grandkids from what will happen if God forbid. Yeah. And that's why they're building spacecraft. Yeah, I know. I always love it. It's like, <laughs> you want to go to Mars? Say, I want out of here. <laughs> I feel like, what, you know, Peace Alliance that you created it felt like that was almost your first toe into politics. Is yeah. that, is that? Yeah. It? Yeah. Dennis Kucinich, interestingly enough, he is now Bobby Kennedy's campaign manager. He's an old friend of mine and he was in Congress at the time and was supporting a piece of legislation for a department of peace. And, uh, I co-founded an organization that would promote the lobbying for that. Mm -hmm. A lot of people don't realize that peace building is an actual thing. There are four statistics, four factors, which if they're present, statistically indicate there will be a greater incidence of peace and a lower incidence of violence, um, greater economic opportunities for women, greater educational opportunities for children, uh, reduction of violence against women, and just the amelioration of human despair. And I, the way I see war and peace, peace and violence, is the same way those of us in the personal growth world see sickness and health. We get it that sickness is the absence of health. Health isn't the absence of sickness. Right. You have to proactively create health. And that's what we have to see about societal health, that you can't just fight war. You have to learn how to wage peace. We have to proactively create a world at peace. We can't just fight wars or as JFK said, if we don't end war, war will end us. Yeah. And did was that experience overall, uh, you know, something that you thought, oh, this system is, I could work within this system. <laughs> I mean. No, the nonprofit <laughs> world is almost this, you know, this is really interesting, isn't it? There is a way in which the private sector is the most pure, surprisingly enough. Yeah. The places where, because you know why the private sector is in a way the most pure? Because there are rules and everybody knows what we're here for. Mm -hmm. So there's no like under the belt stabbing and stuff. There is on this huge corporate level, sure. but in just general business interaction, okay, where you still see ethical relationship. Nonprofits, boy, a lot of snakes in that grass. Yeah. And then politics, nothing like it. It's beyond snakes, landmines. So you you're now campaigning, and you know you're we've we've talked about you, you know you've talked about corporate tyranny, and one thing you said is the issue is not the issue, mm -hmm. and I really appreciated that you know talking about the environment, talking about healthcare and education, um, the young generation you can see it they you resonate with them, mm -hmm. and I'm curious if that's not a little extra fuel in your tank. Well, it is not just emotionally, but politically. Yeah. You know, 37, in this next presidential election, I was reading the other day, we've now reached a point where young people will be voting in as great a number as older people. Now, the traditional belief is, yeah, but they don't vote. This generation does. And you saw that from the 2022 elections. They're voting for their lives. And I think they relate to my message that the whole thing is so damn corrupt. Mm -hmm. Because if you're old enough, you have at least an institutional memory of a time where, you know, it gets bad. There are a bunch yeah. of jerks. At least it looks kind of him. by the rules. Mm -hmm. And you remember a time when you could still make it. You know, I was thinking about mm. this. When I was, let's say, in the 1970s, I was in my 20s, you didn't have to have a lot of money. You know, I look at some of the places where, like, I would speak for $250, I could rent the room and ask everybody for a $3 donation. Places where I used to speak, it's so hard to get started now. Yeah. Young people can't get in the game now. They're living at the effect of bad 
economic ideas left over from the 20th century. I don't, I don't know if there's ever been a generation of young people in this country for whom there is no experience of government having your back. There's right. only an experience. They don't have health care. They can't go to college. They have these, they're straddled by these college loan debts. And they look, many of them have started to look at every other advanced democracy where there is universal health care, where there is tuition-free college, uh, public colleges and universities and tech schools, where there aren't these college loans. And kids are looking around and going, well, what? why do they have it and we don't? Why is it that the American yeah. is given so much less and why? Because of what they recognize is, is, is really what is an economically oppressive system at this point. If you get elected, you're the president, in your mind, what's the first thing you're going to do? First thing I'm going to do is cancel the Willow Project. This is not a time to be ramping up fossil fuel extraction. It's time to be ramping down fossil fuel extraction. We now have, I was reading today, as, as much as extreme heat is happening all over the planet right now. It's actually the coolest summer we're going to have in our lifetime. Okay. It is so, we're at a level of emergency already. We're just acting like it's not because the government is still so beholden to big oil. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, young people see this and the despair. I can't tell you everywhere. Uh, so just to explain to anybody who might not know what the Willow Project is, the Willow Project is an $8 billion ConocoPhillips oil extraction project on the north slopes of Alaska. They completely nullify the otherwise healthy green investments in the Inflation Reduction Act. And this president has given more oil drilling permits than even Trump. So if it's the same old, same old, whether it's Trump or Biden, those people are, I'm sorry, those administrations are sold out to big oil. And this is, uh, we're already in the zone of the flooding, of the storms, of the tornadoes, of the heat. And it could become so terrible in our children's uh, lifetime, possibly even in our own, where whole swaths of continents, usually in the global south, probably Africa, are so hot that they are uninhabitable. That would be an implosion of the economic systems, an implosion of the food systems, and possibly hundreds of millions of climate refugees. Mm -hmm. Civilization would not be able to absorb this. These are right. This would be a catastrophic failure for human civilization. So the first thing I would do is cancel the Willow Project and really start that mass mobilization from majority economy to a clean economy. And another thing that you do that is interesting and very difficult is you're playing by the rules in that... No bad talk. You're not going to be negative about anyone. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I'm, I'm just curious, for example, let's say you have a, either someone writes something, you know, mean, or you've got an, you know, an opponent who's coming after you. Where do you go? And I know you have a deep and long practice of this, but where do you go within yourself to keep generating back to love? Two people who are big on the lies and the smears right now. It's funny. I was saying this to my campaign manager the other day. There are two people who are really big on spreading lies. I've gotten to the point where I can pray for their happiness because I know metaphysically that's the way to alchemize the energy. But there's also a journalist who, whether she was assigned this mm -hmm. by the publication or not, she's out to kill this campaign. Nothing can happen that she doesn't spin a awful narrative about. And at this point, you know, the, the way they're talking, I mean, I think it would be damaging to any career I have. I haven't gotten to the point where I can pray for her happiness yet. You're working on that. I pray for his happiness and I pray for him. I'm still getting her prayer. Okay, she, pray she's on the docket but to I get know, there. I know. I know intellectually yeah. that that's the way. And but, I really do know but that's honest. that's the way. Do you, you talk about, you know, bringing love into politics, love into the White House. <sighs> it That's just means you feed the children. It just means you repair the earth. Mm. It just means you, you yeah. make healthier food. It's no different than we would have for our children. Yeah. How do you love your children? You make sure they're well-fed. You make sure they're well-educated. You make sure the house is safe. You make sure they feel loved. Yeah. How, how do you love anyone? You love anyone by wishing them Wishing them happiness and and making your focus how you might be a space in which they could thrive. That's what public policy should be. It's no it's no different than any other ethical questioning. How could I be a better person in a relationship? You know, Martin Luther King said about Mahatma Gandhi that he was the first person with his philosophy of nonviolence. He said, 
well, what Muhammad Gandhi said is that there's an inner light within every human being. And he got a lot of that from the American transcendentalists and the Quakers, interesting. And he said it heals not only personal relationships, but social and economic mm. relationships as well. Now, what Martin Luther King said was that Gandhi had been the first person to take the ethic of love beyond personal relationships to turn it into a broad-scale social force for good. So for me, personal transformation on societal transformation, same principles. All that a society is is a group of people. So what you and I have to do to heal our lives is exactly what America needs to do. What you and I have to do to transform is exactly what America needs to do. It, and the idea that, oh, no, the psychological and moral and spiritual and emotional principles don't apply is why we are where we are. It, it is a different time. And now you have social media and you can connect directly to people. And um, Jeff Jackson, TikTok, he's gotten very, you know, popular because of sort of this transparency. It shows this real desire to see somebody. Has that been an interesting adjustment for you to use that as a tool? No, because I, you know, that's somebody else, you know, the young man who does TikTok. I don't know if I'm TikTok. Like, yeah, yeah. I do these Q and A's and everybody can tell she's trying to get on, just be patient. I mean, I don't. Oh yeah. The lives. Yeah. It's like, she'll yeah. get there. So no, this was not strategic on my part. My part is what I do. Yeah. And then I'm, blessed to be surrounded by wonderful people on the team who know far more than I do sure. about how to post something on TikTok. That's not my expertise. Do you, this, what you're doing is grueling. I mean, yeah, it is grueling. It's grueling. I, I don't, I don't think, uh, personally for me personally, as, as strong as I think I am and as good as my physical practice is, it would kick my butt in a real way. I don't know. You keep having those dreams. No, I'm I'm so fascinated. You're over 70. You look yeah, amazing, by the way. I think it's all that love. Honestly, I think when we're more loving, you you know, women, we want this lotion, we want this, we want that. I think that practice keeps us more youthful. The lotion, the lotion helps us. Yeah, well. of course, we have that. But what... What practice do you have in place? I know you said meditation. Is there food? Is there yoga. some kind of movement practice that at least to keep, you yoga. know, support your system? Yoga. Like other people, though, boy, a lot a lot fell apart for me during COVID. Mm. I've kept up pretty much with my yoga, but not with my weights, weight training. And that has reflected in my weight. And I'm not, it's very interesting. After COVID, I found the things I used to do to say, oh, I've gained five pounds, I've gained 10 pounds. I just have to do this, 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 and this, and it'll come right off. It doesn't come right off the same way. So um, that's kind of disappointing. Yeah. So I still have the yoga. I have enough of the physical to keep me emotionally stable enough, but uh, I need to get back to pumping some iron. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Listen, they talk about time under tension. Um, I know we're we're going to be running out of time here. I uh, I'm just really curious if you know people all think, what can I do? And if you had an invitation for anyone listening about what can they do beyond voting? Oh, thank you. Even if it's within their own daily practice that feels important to you. Well, first of all, if they're interested in my campaign, I would love for people to go to Marianne2024.com. the, the reports came out, you know, Joe Biden has raised 35 million, Kennedy has raised 6 million, something like that. You know, we have maybe 100,000 in the bank, which is this little this little engine that, that could. A lot of times people come up to me and they say, well, you really should do this or you really should do that. Well, you already have staff who are working mm. hours and hours and hours every day. So if somebody wants to chip in, whether it's $5,000, $500, $50 or $5, um, Please don't, uh, you know, our average donation is something like $25, and that's what fuels this campaign. So sometimes people, particularly I think the younger people who are not yet in the habit of uh, financial giving for political campaigns because they don't think their $5 could make a difference. But a lot of those $5 actually do make a difference. I mean, sometimes I will watch something like on Instagram and people saying the most amazing things, and I I think to myself, if only each of them would give $1 tonight. Mm this would be a really good fundraising day. So uh, that's number one. And also volunteering, because in order to get ballot access, et cetera, um, some states are as simple as, you know, you just buy it. 
other states, you have to get all these signatures. So if anybody is interested in the campaign, uh, it's time to go there, sign up to volunteer. We'll have you phone banking. I feel not just with my campaign, but with all of these issues, which are much bigger than just one person's campaign of really the evolution of the species at this point quickly enough that we turn away from what could be a real devolutionary trajectory. It's, there's a sense that it's a short window now. You know, it's the 11th hour now. It's not midnight, but it's late. And I hope anyone who is interested in, in my campaign anyway, sees it as an urgent matter, not as a matter of, oh, I might vote for her in the primary, but more if you even think this voice should be in the race, mm. please go to the camp uh, to the site and do what you can. Beyond that, I, I I believe in what the Dalai Lama said. He said, "In order to save the world, we must have a plan, but no plan will work unless we meditate." So I think the internal as well as the the external, because if we don't center ourselves through prayer, through reflection, through meditation, whatever our practice is. We can't see, we can't, we can't discern. The, the noise is too great. Mm. The obfuscation, obfuscation is so great. We can't hear really what part we can best play. And then even if we knew what part we could best play, our nervous systems aren't prepared to do it. Mm. Because modernity, particularly all, everything happening now, is an attack on our nervous system. Nobody has any impulse control, especially with social media and so forth. So I think most conscious people know we have to, Take care of this yeah. and take care of that. It's a big both and. Are any of your parents alive? No, but would, I feel they're watching from someplace. Would they be surprised? My mother would not. My father, you know, I think once you exit this realm and where I think everything becomes known, on a soul level, no. But I did feel when my father died, and a lot of this has to do with generations, you know, and how certain generation of men would have seen daughters. I felt when my father died, and actually I felt this when my sister died as well, I felt both of them looking at me going, oh, that's who you are. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people feel that way when people, certain people they love pass, and it's almost like you then see each other more clearly. Yeah. You're not scared, are you? Of death? Just of what you're undertaking right I now. think, well, that's the biggest fear. But I think I have about death what most people I know have. So what is Woody Allen's line? Although it's hard to laugh now with that name, Woody <laughs> Allen. He said, I don't mind dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens. Um, death doesn't frighten me. Mm -hmm. Dying frightens me as much as anyone. We all have our ways we would prefer not to go. Um, but I'm 71 and I think like a lot of people my age, I'm more afraid of dying knowing I didn't really do it while I was here. Yeah. I let the bastard stop me as my father would say. That scares me way more than just the thought of dying. I want to feel in that last moment that I kicked ass while I was here. I think you are kicking ass. Thank this you. is my last question. When you walk into a room and you kind of know they're not for you, maybe it's a heavy political room with, you know, the group, the whole organized <clears throat> group. Where do you get the interior courage, the, the you know, metal to go, yep, and I'm going to walk in there with my head high and I'm just going to do it. I'm going to be there. I'm going to take it. Where do you get that from? It happens a lot now. Um, you know, you, it's almost like you feel like people are looking at you like, I know who you are. And I think to myself, oh, no, you don't. Mm -hmm. um, it's what you just said. And it's what we were talking about earlier. You're either going to do this or not going to do this. And if you are going to do this, you're going to uh, walk into this room and you are going to remember who you are. I think there's a line from Eleanor Roosevelt, something about no one. And I don't know the exact words. No one can make you feel less than unless you allow them to. And I, I like to think with some of those people, the time will come when they know better. Good luck and thank you for thank your time. You. And we'll direct everyone again on all the notes um, where they can find you and donate and just follow your journey. Thank you. It was thank really you. lovely talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. 
Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. If you want to learn more, there is a ton of valuable information on my website. Head to the link in the show notes and click gabbyreese.com to find a full breakdown with helpful links to studies, research, books, products, and more. If you have any questions for my guests or even myself, please send them to at Gabby Reese on Instagram. If you feel inspired, please hit the follow button, leave a rating and a comment. It not only helps me, it really helps the show grow and reach new listeners. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.